Coming up on today's show, the Open for Summer Lottery. Will it work? Are there better ways? Also chat about Pierre Trudeau and his failures on Indigenous rights and the RCMP broke the law with Clearview AI facial recognition software. What is it and what went wrong? A lot of you on the text line with a couple of uh, really good points. I th- a lot of people saying, you know what, instead of three $1 million prizes, maybe spread it out, make it $50,000 prizes, a whole whack of them. That way you may get, you know, your chances of winning are better. That's not a bad point. I, th- there's some definitely uh, some validity to that. A lot of people saying, well, he said within seven days of hitting 70%. Listen, the government put out a statement on the weekend saying anybody who has received their first dose is eligible. Anybody. At any point in time during this, if you have been vaccinated, you are eligible. Dr. Hinshaw and the Premier both said that last week. Okay? Did he muddle it up a little bit in his statement? I guess. Uh, Bottom line, they've made it abundantly clear before and after. If you have been vaccinated, you are eligible. Period. That's it. If you have received at least one dose, you're good. You're in the draw. We'll find out the details later today about exactly how we go about entering that draw. Right now, let's get a little bit of the science behind uh, vaccine lotteries and other things like that. We're going to chat now with Dr. Bradley Ruffle, who is the academic director at the McMaster Decision Science Laboratory. Pretty cool sounding place. Uh, doctor, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Shay. You know, these kinds of financial incentives... Um, I guess there's some anecdotal evidence, Ohio reporting that it's, it's helped there, but some behavioral economists say, yeah, this isn't, this isn't a good way to go. What are your thoughts? Uh, do you think this is a, an effective means of getting people to roll up their sleeves? I think it's a decent idea. As an economist, I certainly believe that financial incentives can change people's behavior, but I think it's about the fifth best idea you can think of to increase vaccination rates. Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier the idea of having 50 prizes instead of just, or multiple prizes, rather than just one lottery with a single million-dollar prize. And so I think that's already an improvement. Rather than just a single lottery with a single million-dollar prize, offer, I would suggest, a thousand $1,000 prizes. It still totals up to the same million dollars mm-hmm. in prizes, um, but it would be more effective. And the way to conduct such a lottery would be to have these thousand prizes of $1,000 each, having, having such a lottery every day, um, where, for instance, you announced 10 $1,000 prize winners publicly. And so you'd run this lottery for a number of days, and it, it would be likely after a number of days that already just about every Albertan would know at least someone who's won one of these $1,000 prizes. So it makes the lottery more real, more salient. It's not this pie-in-the-sky, one right. chance in almost $4 million to win the, the big prize. So it's, it's almost marketing at that point, right? Sure. I mean, there's certainly marketing. Marketing's a big part of behavioral economics, and a big. We know marketing's effective in selling in selling product. And here we're just trying to sell vaccines and get more people vaccinated. You know, and I think you make a good point because it, the prize isn't necessarily the key. Because we we saw a big uptake in New Jersey when they started offering a free beer, just because yeah. I think it garnered so much attention, right, and so much interest around it that it put it on the radar for a lot of people. That's right. Yeah, for sure. I think. Um, just, just creating the awareness, giving out, I think prizes are valuable, but lots of small prizes so that more people can be included, more people can benefit. But you don't even need prizes. I think, I think my, so I mentioned five ideas, this mm-hmm. being the fifth, fifth best idea, and I told you now my fourth best idea, which is lots of little prizes, lots of thousand, right. thousand, thousand dollar prizes. 
I think the number one best idea to promote vaccines is to have what's called an opt-out system. So in other words, when the vaccines were first developed and while we were still waiting for them to be approved by Health Canada, the government already starts to begin booking appointments for every adult Canadian. And so you get a phone call or a letter telling you to go to such and such a place on a specified date and time to get your first vaccine dose. You, of course, have the option to cancel your appointment if you really don't want to go, but that, of course, requires some effort. The easiest thing for you to do is just show up and get, get your vaccination. And that, of course, is going to overcome some vaccine hesitancy among some people who are on the fence. We don't expect, I wouldn't expect it to work on the anti-vaxxers who have this strong right, ideology. Sure. Not, but, but those who are on the fence are those who are just disorganized and can't get their act together, maybe are confused, maybe don't know how to use the computer to book their appointment. They just get, you get it booked for you. Interesting, and, yeah. Yeah, I think, and so the, the idea here is really to make it easier. I think just making it easier for people would be more effective than any of these financial incentives that are being talked about. Let's talk a bit about, as a behavioral economist, these kinds of incentives. I mean, if, what other things have they worked really well on, and what are we sort of basing this kind of thinking on in terms of getting people to do something that is in, I mean, because you would think for most people, just not getting sick and, you know, reopening the economy, all those things would be incentive enough. But, you know, in terms of adding these financial sweeteners, um, what's this based in? Well, no, for, because for some people it's not enough, right? Yeah. For, for, you can imagine younger, healthy people who say, I'm not going to, even if I get COVID, I'm not going to get COVID, and even if I do, it's not really going to hurt me. But, of course, they're not taking into account the fact that they might be infecting others who are more vulnerable than they are. And so the idea of these incentives is to push the, the younger people, the people who otherwise might not be in a hurry to get vaccinated, to do so more quickly. And there's, there's, there's abundant evidence that financial incentives work to change behaviors. Um, in terms of lotteries, there's, there's, there is evidence in the, the health domain. There's, there's some mixed evidence. So, for instance, there's a study done in the University of Pennsylvania where they offered a large number of small prizes. That was more effective than one big prize in getting people to increase their physical activity, people at a high BMI. Index. Okay. Yeah. Um, there has been some success with it and also some cases where there wasn't. I've seen a study where they used lotteries as financial prizes to get people to, um, to go for eye screening exams, people who had diabetes, and here it wasn't effective. So lotteries can be effective. I think there are more sound behavioral principles, things like making it easy, getting the messaging right, um, you know, promoting the testing and the effectiveness of it. I think those are the first place to go. I think maybe the financial incentives are, are second. So that's why I like this opt-out, because I just think it, it really makes it easy. It makes the default to, to go and get vaccinated. If you don't want to get vaccinated, you have to cancel your appointment or change it. And, and by the way, um, it's not such an original idea. The idea has been used with great success in, in organ donations. So here in right, Canada, yeah. we have an, an opt-in system, but in some countries in the world, they have this opt-out system. So here are two countries. Here's just one example. Um, so Germany has an opt-in system for organ donations, and they have an organ uh, consent rate of about 12% among Germans. Mm -hmm. Austria, neighboring countries, speak similar cultures, speak the same language, similar level of economic development. They have an opt-out system, yet they have a consent rate of 99% of plus. Oh. 12% versus 99%. The, the key difference is the opt-in versus the opt-out system. Amazing. 
Yeah, I wish we had done that with vaccines. It's, it's a little late at this stage. But it sure is, yeah. So where yeah. we are now, this idea that we have, not a bad idea, maybe not the best way of going about it, uh, but not a bad idea overall. That's an accurate summary. Excellent. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Shay. That is Dr. Bradley Ruffle, who is um, with the... McMaster Decision Science Laboratory. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Free. Sir Johnny McDonald caught a lot of heat, um, basically around the residential school situation as the guy who sort of was the architect of the framework of the residential school system. But think about it. Every single Canadian prime minister from Sir Johnny McDonald right up to and including Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and in some ways Jean Chrétien, who was Minister of Indian Affairs in Trudeau's government, have been involved and have some sort of legacy that they need to reckon with, especially Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Joining us now to talk more about that is Raymond B. Blake, who is a professor of history and the Associate Dean of Research and Graduate Studies at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Regina. Uh, Professor Blake, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you very much, and great to be with you. Um, Yeah, when we take a look at this, of course, we can talk about just about every Canadian Prime Minister, but when we talk about Prime Minister uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau in particular, his legacy around Indigenous affairs in this country and residential schools is pretty tarnished, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you you had a great intro there, but, you know, Mr. Trudeau, uh, the elder, was spent his life, I guess his his animating political spirit uh, was protecting human rights. Yeah, and uh, you know to create equality of citizenship, and and many Canadians admired him greatly during his lifetime in politics, and and even today, you know, we remember Pierre Trudeau for the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and Equality, and uh, everybody can live and prosper in Canada. Um, I want to ask you in particular about the um, proposed white paper that he and Jean Chrétien came up with, uh, I think it was 1969, which was just lambasted and really sort of flies in the face of that whole multiculturalism and the whole Charter of Rights and Freedoms, right? It it was entirely different uh, than what he was saying on the one hand, what he was doing with this act. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, Mr. Trudeau promised that he would consult uh, with Indigenous peoples before he introduced his white paper. But, you know, uh, Mr. Trudeau came to office with uh, a a large number of people who worked around him, like Mark Lalonde, a name that some of your listeners may know, um, and others who was his principal secretary. And they were firmly believed in equality of citizenship. 
And they saw in any country like Canada no place for special status, no place for treaties between you know, uh, different nations within a single country or a single state. And, and they believed that everyone was an individual. And that as individuals, you would interact with your state as an individual, not as a group. And so when he introduced the white paper, there were many things in it, of course. But that was the basic premise. And as we know, indigenous communities are very much oriented towards community and towards group. And individuals are not the same in their communities as Mr. Trudeau saw it in his vision of what Canada should be. And essentially, he was just continuing the policy. When we talk about residential schools, it was about assimilation. And his white paper in essence, was just continuing the policy of assimilation, was it not? Well, it, it's somewhat difficult to make that to make that argument. Uh, although he wanted Indigenous people to interact, um, you know, as all other Canadians would you know, within the Canadian state, but at the same time, Mr. Trudeau is bringing in a policy of multiculturalism, which becomes official in 1970. And there it was... You can keep your identity, you know, the way that you see your identity is a personal thing, and we're not going to have sort of a a, um, a melting pot in Canada. We sometimes compare that to what yeah. the United States are doing. And so Mr. Trudeau, on the other hand, was saying, you know, your identity is your own responsibility and your own choice. So it wasn't really an assimilationist policy in that sense, but it was a policy where Mr. Trudeau believed in individualism. And within this individual, within this country, you know, as an individual, you could do what you wanted. Yeah. And 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 so it's a similar it's assimilation in the sense that we would all sort of be the same in 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 interacting with the state and with each other, but it was a different approach than assimilation, say in the eighteen seventies. Uh, quite different from what Mr. Trudeau saw in the 1970s. We now see his son grappling with um, Canada's history and how to reconcile that going forward. Um, what was the elder Trudeau's vision in terms of, or his thought process, I guess, in terms of what had come before him and um, what Canada's responsibility was in redressing some of that? Oh, you know, he was completely dismissive of that. But I, I should say just one thing on the residential schools is that Mr. Trudeau did begin to, this is uh, yeah. Pierre Trudeau, did begin to sort of, uh, um, you know, move away from, and during his time in office, the residential schools decreased significantly in the number across the country. But in terms of the apology, which, which you know, his son has become almost famous or depending on your viewpoint infamous for uh the apologies mr trudeau was completely opposed and he frequently um said you know our goal is not to and his words were to rewrite history or change history or to to uh forget history his notion was uh, you know what happened in the past happened for a particular reason and once we start judging you know making decisions about um, you know, what was right and what was wrong in 1970 or 84 when he retired um, about what happened in terms of the Japanese internment during the Second World right. War. You, you see, you know, these were extraordinary circumstances. And the people weren't just, 
you know, thrown in jail simply because of racism, uh, I should say in jail, but, uh, you know, in, in internment camps, uh, in the Japanese situation, uh, because people were simply racist. You know, these were extraordinary times. We were at war with Japan. And, and so, very interestingly, on the last day in office, uh, Brian Mulroney was the leader of the, of the Conservative Party, and they were sort of really going after Mr. Trudeau for not apologizing for past acts. And, and he got angry, got upset, and he said, you're sick. These were his exact words. You're sick if you think we can sort of redo the, undo the path. These, we need to be just in our own time and move on in a better way than we did. Let's learn from it, but let's do things better. But he was totally opposed, and he refused to apologize to anyone for historic deeds. And he was also very opposed to heaping criticism upon for example, Sir Johnny MacDonald, um, saying that they were, you know, sort of nation builders, and we need to recognize that. So kind of similar to what Jason Kenney was saying last week, these were these were great leaders and founders of our nation, and, and, and that's important. Well, Mr. Mr. Trudeau seemed to have had a great, uh, a great respect for what he called, you know, the fathers of mm-hmm. Confederation. And he heaped great praise upon them continually throughout his speeches uh, throughout Canada. And and he said, you know, their legacy is our inheritance, and we must do good by them. And he frequently talked particularly about George Etienne Cartier from Quebec, uh, Dalton, um, uh, uh, Darcy McGee from Quebec as well, uh, from Ireland initially, and said, like, these people created Canada in 1867, and they realized we can't create a single nationality, that we have to recognize that there are differences. And we see this in the Constitution uh, in eight, that was created in 1867. Uh, we see this in the, the, the relationship between French and English. And he said they recognize diversity. They recognize that there yeah. were... And back in the time, of course, if you were English or Welsh or Scottish or French, they, they considered them racist. And today, of course, they're all lumped together, as probably they should be. But Mr. Trudeau said, you know, Catholics and Protestants, you know, we recognize separate schools. We recognize differences. And he said that was, you know, these people were building a dream. And in the frequently throughout his 16 years in office, he would say to Canadians in speeches from one end of the country to the other is what a wonderful dream they had. And we need to sort of, you know, run with it and, 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 and realize, of course, we're in a different time. But he thought that the Fathers of Confederation created something that was unique in Canada. Professor, thank you so much for your insight. Some great information for our listeners this morning. Well, thank you very much for having me on, and, and you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you very much. That's Raymond B. Blake, who is a professor of history and associate dean of research and graduate studies at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Regina. RCMP, of course, being our national police force, is charged with enforcing the laws of our land, right? Well, last week, the federal privacy watchdog said the Mounties themselves broke the law with their use of some high-tech, cutting-edge facial recognition software. In the report released on Thursday, the privacy commissioner detailed serious and systemic failing, he called it, by the RCMP to ensure compliance with the Privacy Act before gathering information from Clearview AI. Dr. Tom Keenan is a professor at the University of Calgary and the author of Techno Creep. 
He joins us now. Doc, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Good morning, Jay. Let's get the lay of the land here. Clearview AI facial recognition software. What exactly is that? It's a company based in New York that had a really good idea. There's all these photographs up there, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and all that. Many of them have names attached to them. (laughs) Why don't we put those on a ginormous database? And what would we do with that? Well, I guess, you know, you could use it walking down the street. Oh, who's that lady over there? But the people who really cared about it were law enforcement. And if you go on Preview AI's website, they have these great success stories about how their technology was used to solve a mail theft and things like that. The problem is we didn't give any consent to be in this thing, and they probably have your picture in there. Yeah, to state the obvious, not one of us was contacted by Clearview <laughs> and said, hey, can we use your picture? Yeah. So, now- so if, you, if you think back, and it's actually in my book, Technocreep, there were riots in Vancouver in 2011, yeah. you know, after they lost the Stanley Cup. And there were so many photographs. There were police photographs. There were uh, uh, news footage. There were just people's cell phones. And the police, and I checked up on it, actually posted a lot of the photos of people breaking windows, burning cars, and said, if you know this person, rat them out. Here's the yeah, line. Sure. And they had several hundred tips that actually panned out. So, you know, that's kind of a use that most of us would agree with. But it got interesting because they said to the privacy commissioner there, hey, we'd like to use the driver's license database to track down these people. And she ruled, it was Elizabeth Denham at the time, she ruled, nope, that's not what it was intended for. So uh, she very much restricted that. So the idea is, is love to things, you know, things law enforcement would love to do, but we also kind of love our privacy. So what do the rules state? What are they allowed to use in terms of this kind of facial recognition software? Are there rules around this? Yeah, there are. It's a, there's privacy laws in Canada. And in fact, I want to make sure, because you didn't mention, that the Alberta Privacy Commissioner, Jill Clayton, was one of the four on this. So it was the federal commissioner, uh, Quebec, Alberta, and B.C. And they all said, look, um, your arguments uh, that Privacy laws do not apply because you don't have a connection in Canada. That was the first one. They said, no way. You're selling things to the RCMP. Of course you have a connection. And then Mr. Tom Pat, who was the founder of this, went on to say, well, these are all in the public domain. We should be able to take them. And the Privacy Commissioner said, no. What you're really saying is you should be able to do mass surveillance. (laughs) You may get away with that in the U.S. You're not getting away with it in Canada. So can they use facial recognition software at all in Canada? I mean, can they go through a database of mugshots, I assume, or something like that might be okay? Yes. In 2014, the Calgary police became the first, uh, and they're very technologically advanced, I'll give them credit, first police jurisdiction to actually run... um, crime scene photos or surveillance camera photos against mugshots. That's different because to get in a mugshot database, by and large, you have to have committed a crime or at least have been accused of a crime. It's qualitatively different from taking every picture on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and if you can find a name, putting it there. And by the way, who says the name is right? I once tagged (laughs) all my friends on Facebook as asparagus, cauliflower, cantaloupe, just to see how the facial recognition would deal with that. And what happened? Um, well, um, my friends noticed, and they said, why are you calling me a cantaloupe? <laughs> <laughs> um, Facebook so- didn't care. Facebook didn't care.
What was the outcome of these findings? Like, so what happens to yeah. the RCMP? Did they have to get rid of this? Can they no yeah, longer yeah, yeah. use it? So it's, it's, it's banned in Canada. So essentially, with all these privacy commissioners saying this, law enforcement is backed away. We know the Calgary police had it. I don't know about the Edmonton police. Uh, we know it was being tried. I mean, and, you know, it's a funny thing, too, how police work. Uh, they might officially adopt something, or they might just say to some officers, well, you know, go make a private account. They have a free trial. So apparently that's what happened in Calgary. And I should say, this is important, I can think of legitimate uses. In B.C., one of the cases was they were trying to find a child who was in a child exploitation video, Mm -hmm. and they thought, well, you know, maybe this child has a Facebook. So it's not like you can't conceive of reasons where this would actually be ethically great, but by and large, who wants the police to know, oh, you just walked and you got on the uh, C train at such and such a stop at such and such an hour, and now we know who you are. They do that in another country. It's called China, (laughs) and there's a lot of reasons why we don't want to be that way. Well, you mentioned China, but I mean, when, you know, just following the Capitol uprising of January 6th, a tremendous amount of facial recognition software was used to identify those people. Yeah, that's right. And there, there is probable cause. If you see somebody with a flagpole beating a cop with it, you have immediate probable cause that maybe they're committing a crime. Even, you know, being in there, since it was technically trespassing, they are all yeah, yeah. presumed criminals. So I'm fine with that. I'm not fine with the, we already know there are cameras on all the buses in, in Alberta, on all the train stations. I'm not happy with somehow that footage getting crossed over with my Facebook page and other things wherein I put down people's names and it just becomes a kind of fishing expedition or, you know, as Trump says, a witch hunt and the problem is we are all victims and you wouldn't know. No. That's the other thing. There's no requirement for them to tell you, hey, we found your photo in this database. And Doc, there's also no way to prevent being part of this data. I mean, if if you're there's nothing you can do. Yeah, there is actually. Because they got got spanked so much, Clearview has made an offer you can't refuse. Here's the offer. We'll take you out of our database. We will, all Canadians, yeah, we'll take you out. Uh, There is a bit of a catch. You have to send us a photo of yourself. So a lot of people... Oh, come on. Wait a minute, we hate you. Well, I mean, Tontat, the founder of Clearview, made a reasonable argument. He said that's the only reliable way we have to figure out who you are is by looking at your photo and so therefore you have to send us a photo and we promise we'll destroy it and we won't sell it to law enforcement and all that the point is for Canada for the time being at least these people have been spanked royally okay I think any police force in Canada unless they have a special case like child exploitation any police force that use this would risk major major jeopardy it's just like that thing called the stingray which, you know, is a cell phone impersonator. We know that the Edmonton police used it because some poor person, when they were called up, said, oh, yeah, we have two of those. So, (laughs) you know, there's this problem with police technology. I'm all for transparency. They should tell us. Yeah, sure. Just let us know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, doctor. Great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Okay. Thank you, Shay. And uh, we eat elk meat down here in Calgary. Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> I don't know anybody eats stampede or meat. <laughs> Take care. Uh, here we go. We don't even know if they're playing yet this year, and it's already starting. I love it. I love it. We can have a battle of Alberta again. Wouldn't that be awesome? But yeah, really, really interesting to to see how Canadian law enforcement just decided, oh, that's an interesting service. Why don't we take advantage of that? Knowing full well that uh, that's not allowed. Um, but 
I guess we just have to accept the fact, right? If you're on social media, um, this Clearview AI just scraped social media for millions and millions and millions and millions of pictures and names and form this giant database. And then, you know, law enforcement services can just run crime scene photos or whatever they want through this software program. It does the facial recognition and boom, you, you know, you maybe have had no interaction with law enforcement in your entire life, but you're in this database and you could be cross-referenced. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.